Welcome back to the program. The lyrics say that nobody walks in L.A. That certainly was true once, in a city where its inhabitants were long hermetically sealed inside their cars, as if in pneumatic tubes shuttling from place to place. L.A. was for a long time a place where, as Joan Didion said, the entire quality of life accentuated its impermanence and unreliability. Today, Los Angeles is a vastly different place, a city of neighborhoods and of freeways, a city both urban and suburban, a kind of hybrid that sits at the cutting edge of America's movement towards cities while still trying to hang on to its suburban trappings. In short, L.A. just might be some kind of cultural or urban capital of the 21st century. Few appreciate and understand the city more than my guest, David Eulen. David Eulen is a book critic and former book editor at the Los Angeles Times, a Guggenheim Fellow, the author of numerous books. His latest is Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles. It is my pleasure to welcome David Eulen to the program. David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to have you here. Talk a little bit about this book conceptually, the idea of really focusing on walking around L.A., because to people that don't know it, it seems so contradictory, I suppose. Well, I think it's probably contradictory to people who know it also. Um, it's partly, and you know, the book is a very subjective kind of take on the city, and the walking aspect of it absolutely arises from my own subjective experience. I was born and raised in New York. I spent some time uh, living in San Francisco. I've always been a walker uh, in the city and I've always sort of accessed the city through a pedestrian filter. So when I moved to Los Angeles in the early 1990s, it just seemed a kind of natural way for me to engage with place. Um, I didn't give it a lot of thought except that I was often the only person on the street. Um, there, you know, there, a friend of mine, when I was writing this book, said to me, you're not going to make a case for Los Angeles as a walking city, are you? And I said, I can't really do that. But I do think that you know, walking goes on within the city and in some ways offered me a little bit of a counterintuitive lens um, for looking at the city because it's one of the great conundrums and I think challenges of thinking about Los Angeles is that it comes swaddled in so many kind of tropes or cliches and so the question one of the questions becomes how do we peel those back and see what's happening beneath the lay uh, below the surface and for me walking at first inadvertently and then um, actually quite consciously became uh, a mechanism for trying to do that it also was an opportunity to understand the neighborhoods of Los Angeles, which a lot of people don't quite grasp in, in their totality, because we think of it as this, this interconnected place, people being shuttled, as I said in the introduction, in cars from place to place. But there is a great sense of neighborhood in so many places. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for me, one of the great revelations of living here has been how much of a city of neighborhoods it is, and I, you know, you're right. That is a kind of hidden, or a little, another little bit below the surface aspect of the city. For me, in, in some ways, it didn't become fully apparent until, um, although I've been living in the neighborhoods, it didn't really. I didn't really start to think of it in a, in that way until I read Janet Fitch's novel White Oleander, which mm -hmm. I think came out in 1999, which is very much a, a story of the city, of the city of neighborhoods. Her character is a foster kid who gets shuttled through a variety of neighborhoods, and the neighborhoods begin to be a defining way that she thinks about the city. That really started me thinking about this. Um, you know, I've always lived in a certain area of town, but in a variety of neighborhoods in that town, um, in, that, in that part of town. A couple, about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, we moved 10 or 12 blocks east, 
and it was a completely different community that we uh, that we had moved into. And so, it's really interesting. The sprawl is the thing that people see, and certainly the sprawl is a huge part of the city. But within that sprawl, um, it's very much a city of neighborhoods, and the neighborhoods are very clearly defined. Was there a tipping point when L.A. started to change from that kind of auto landscape, that kind of Joan Didion quality, to the L.A. that that you write about today? You know, I think it's been an evolutionary process. Um, For me, I think that the post, let's say the post-catastrophic L.A. of the early mid-1990s is really kind of the beginning beginning point of, of the Los Angeles that we're living in now. Uh, my friend Christopher Hawthorne, who's uh, the architecture critic at the Los Angeles Times, calls it what we're living in now, the third Los Angeles. He would say that the second Los Angeles is that Didion sort of freeway, mm-hmm. um, disassociated, sprawl um, Los Angeles. And I think it's a kind of uh, a, a useful metaphor um, to think about. I think in the mid-90s, both because of economics and then because of disruptions, natural disruptions, Northridge, cultural disruptions, the Rodney King riots, the O.J. Um, verdict, and the civil trial, all of those kind of things. This sort of sense that the fantasy that people had had, Tom Bradley, when he was mayor, used to call Los Angeles a glorious mosaic, which I always kind of liked as a metaphor, but it is a metaphor for, um, I guess, for sort of dislocation, right? The tiles in the mosaic add up to something, but they are all kind of individual. I think that after those disruptions in the mid-90s, also I think it's important to remember the subway started coming in, and the red line, uh, the, the, the blue line uh, light rail opened in 1990, and the red line first leg in 93, and then was expanded throughout the 1990s. As those sort of elements started coming into play, and Los Angeles had to kind of shed its, you know, we're a paradisical city that works myth. Um, this sort of new Los Angeles began to arise, and it was a grittier Los Angeles, and it was a Los Angeles that was based more on a kind of understanding of the city as a as a collective entity. We're all in it together. Everybody was affected by all of these disruptions, regardless of, of what part of town they lived in. I think it just kind of made a subtle shift in sensibility. And then what, what has happened since then, which is really escalated in the last, say, five to ten years, is both about sensibility and also in some way about developing or redeveloping um, infrastructure. But I think that psychological shift happens uh, um, you know, post-90s uh, disruption. I teach a class in the literature of Los Angeles, and the, the further we get from the mid-1990s, the more it seems that we're, um, you know, we're living in a different city than we were then. It's also resulted in the gentrification of some of those neighborhoods. At the same time, it's moved the locus of the city more and more east. Absolutely, and I think that that's a huge challenge. I mean, if you look at neighborhoods like Echo Park, if you look at downtown Los Angeles, for instance, there's a lot of discussion at this point about uh, the Broadway corridor, let's say, right? There's um, plans to bring back the the theaters. Some of them are already coming back in the old sort of movie palaces. Some of them are already coming back into play. There's much more residential life um, down there. There's vast disparities of, um, you know, income disparities class disparities. I think that's always the challenge in terms of the rejuvenation of any urban landscape, and particularly urban core. Um, you know, how that plays out, I don't know. I have my suspicions based on how I've watched it play out in other cities, including San Francisco and certainly New York. Um, I, don't, I don't have an answer to that question in terms of, uh, of, a, of a solution to it. I think that it's, it's one of the complications of this kind of redevelopment of a city. 
What's interesting in Los Angeles, though, is the way it shifts around, the way the population and, and these trends have the ability to shift around in ways that can happen in San Francisco at 49 square miles locked in or even in Manhattan. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there is a way that you, I mean, you could make an argument. I think uh, I talk a little bit about this in the book. You could make an argument for a kind of, um, you know, what would be the Manhattan of Los Angeles, right? I mean, when I first moved here as an ex-New Yorker, constantly comparing everything to New York, partly because that was my, my frame of reference. So that was how I kind of understood the way cities worked. Um, you know, I sort of tried to imagine what would be the Manhattan of Los Angeles. The model that I came up with, which both works and is also utterly flawed, is, you know, downtown to the beach, um, you know, the hills to, say, maybe the 10 freeway. You know, it's a kind of lengthy corridor. It does sort of operate according to some of those kind of, uh, some of Manhattan's principles. But it's a, it's, a, it's a false analogy. So one of the things you're dealing with in Los Angeles is that it's a unique urban landscape, that it developed in a unique way, that it was at least since um, the development of the freeways and, and, and post-war era, it is a, you know, a, a willfully decentered city, right? Downtown, when I first moved here in the early 90s, downtown emptied out at five o'clock and, you know, was essentially a war zone in, uh, at night people, you know, it was years I would drive around the first year or two I was here. And every time I saw a cluster of buildings, I'd say, Oh, is that downtown? It turned out that most of the time it wasn't. Downtown. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of idea of downtown as an emerald city that nobody actually ever, um, you know, ever reaches in some way. It's one of the most interesting things I think about the sort of reinvention or redevelopment of Los Angeles is the return to downtown as a kind of thriving urban center. I think that that's, I mean, that, that's unique and interesting in terms of Los Angeles' history and development. It's actually a kind of back-to-the-future type of deal, which a lot of what's going on in the city, I think, is a kind of return to the city as it was in the early part of the 20th century before it was diffused, before it was freeweighed, right? I mean, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, Los Angeles had one of the best public transportation systems in the United States, and it was all torn out. So that's now being replaced. It was very much a downtown-centric city in its way until it wasn't. Now it may be returning to that. Um, but I also think that that reflects a kind of trend in cities anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. we've been watching over the last 20, 25 years or so a kind of return to the urban core in all sorts of cities, a revitalization of neighborhoods that were once blighted, um, you know, as people, you know, the kind of rejection of the free of the suburb uh, commuter model, which, while really taking root in Los Angeles, is also endemic to the entire post-war urban development of the United States. Right, Levittown, 1920, is really the first far-flung suburb, and that's a suburb of New York City um, on Long Island. So. I think that, you know, in that sense, one of the interesting things about writing and thinking about L.A. is that it is both unique in its, you know, its historical or its um, social context, but it's also reflective of a kind of a broader sense of how we as a culture are interacting with our cities. And that's the interesting part about it, that it does reflect in so many ways this movement toward cities, this movement toward urbanization, but also with one foot always in that suburban culture, that it's possible to live in Cheviot Hills and work in Century City and be close by. Absolutely. Or the other, you know, even, um, you know, another example of that is all of the, you know, depending, again, on, on income level and all of that, but, you know, all of the new 
um, condo developments that are going up in downtown or pretty right. much anywhere, but let's right. say downtown and all have parking, right? So it's, you know, in other cities where the return to the urban core has been a, you know, a driver, um, that doesn't necessarily include driving. It doesn't necessarily include, you know, in fact, one of the great things about, for me, about this kind of more traditional urbanization in Los Angeles is I don't have to drive as much. I don't like driving. So, um, you know, selfishly, I like the idea of not having to have a car all the time, or of course I have a car, but not having to get into a car all the time. Um, but all of these developments come with the car, so you know, or come with with um, with facilities for the car. So, in that sense, it is a, it is very much a double vision city, and I think that that's true of it in general. You know, sprawl and neighborhoods, um, glamour, which is one of the other great tropes and myths, which is certainly part of the social landscape of the city and working people. I mean, it's a city of, you know, of, of three, four million people, many of whom are just working for a living, like as in any other city. Only in Los, when we think about Los Angeles does that seem vaguely exotic in some way. But I'm always interested in these polarities and how, you know, the actual nature of the city kind of exists somewhere in between. It's also a city that, while it worships celebrity on the one hand, really lends itself to a lot of anonymity, if that's what somebody wants. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, you know, for me personally, that was one of the great draws. Once I, once I kind of got here and sort of stopped comparing it and began to kind of deal with it on its own terms, one of the greatest things about the city is its anonymity. Uh, paradoxically, I think that's one of the great things about New York. That's one of the things I've always loved about living in cities is that you can get lost if you want to and just drift through, you know, through streetscapes and, um, and just be part of the crowd. You know, even if the crowd is spread out and diffuse, no one's paying that much attention to you unless you want to draw attention to yourself. And that has got to be one of the greatest things about living in cities. Also, when we think of, of so many cities today, not just in the U.S., but around the world, we think of them in, in either vertical terms or linear terms. L.A. somehow manages to successfully be both. It does. I mean, I think partly, again, that goes back to, I mean, it goes back to a couple of things. One, I think it goes back to just the, the geographic sprawl of the landmass, right? The square mileage of the city, which is huge. And also this sense, um, which I think has also changed recently and is one of the reasons for sort of the psychological reimagining of the city, but this sense for a long time that the city was limitless, physically limitless, that it could sprawl endlessly, that there was endless space. So no one ever had to build up. You could always build out um, because there was always more out to build into. If you read the prologue of uh, Mike Davis's City of Courts, He's talking in that prologue about the Antelope Valley, and he's talking about communities that have basically been platted but not built. So there are streets without houses and little sort of you know red flags or red uh, banners marking the, the intersections. In some ways, that's in the late 1980s he's writing. That whole, um, you know, in some ways, that's a callback to 100 years earlier, the real estate boom of the 1880s, which, you know, Carrie McWilliams describes in Southern California, Country and Island on the Land, and talks about all of those towns that were mapped out and never developed. You know, within a year, you know, they had one resident and one house, but they had all of these um, all of these structures. Again, two things happen there. One is that sense of L.A. as a place without history gets pretty obliterated by that um, that notion of these historical echoes. But what's interesting is that, is that in, in the sprawl aspect, at least, Davis was, appears to have been wrong, that the, you know, the city did hit its limits. Shortly after Davis wrote about the kind of 
endless or um, you know endless potential sprawl of the city, people started for um, you know started abandoning those houses. Foreclosures um, out in the Antelope Valley were huge because nobody could handle the commute. It was two and a half hours in and out of the city. And so, um, and, and the city sort of at some point hit its geographic limits and kind of doubled back in on itself. And I think that that's a big part of that, that duality, right? I mean, it's a horizontal city physically. It's a single family home has always been the kind of ideal of Los Angeles going back to the late 1800s. It's a big part of the way the culture of the city operates private architecture as opposed to public architecture, uh, private life as opposed to public life. It's one of the reasons we have such difficulty conceptualizing the streets as public space here. Although, again, I think that's, um, that's changing. I think also, you know, that horizontality contributes a lot to the flow of the city, to the sense of possibility here. There, it is less vertical both physically, and I think it's also less vertical or less hierarchical uh, emotionally or psychologically. It's interesting when you talk about the streets as public spaces and then you look in L.A. at something like the Grove, which is such a strange perversion of that, but interesting nonetheless. <laughs> the Grove is fascinating. It is a strange, strange place. I, you know, I, I, it's, it's doubly strange or triply strange even for me because I live within walking distance, so I often <laughs> walk to the Grove, so I navigate the, ur- the actual urban street on my way to a fake urban street. <laughs> in which I have actual legitimate urban experiences, right? Which is a kind of a fascinating thing. The Grove as a, as a shopping center, which, um, which is designed to look like a kind of disnified version of, uh, of an urban shopping street. Um, but the street itself with, I mean, with actually a street that runs through it and a trolley that runs along that street, the street itself is, um, is open, right? So people who live in the neighborhood can jog through that street, can walk through that street, uh, and actually use it as a thoroughfare if they if they want to, even when the mall itself is closed. And for all of its Aristotle sensibility, right? It's a mall that's designed to, to sort of ape public space. There's a village green with a fountain. They often have bands. It's a it, you know it's public space with a purpose. It's not public space that is being used by people either as a kind of commons or as a, as a thoroughfare. It's public space that is, or it's semi or quasi public space that is designed to hold the public in place so that they can shop. So there's something really interesting about that as a kind of driving mechanism for the place. At the same time. It does operate in some sense as a street. You run into people there in the kind of in that serendipitous urban way that is not so common in a city like Los Angeles where there isn't, you know, there's still to this day, you know, street life is localized. You have to kind of find uh, where it is. And so I think the Grove is, is, for me, is more interesting, not for its intentions, but for its effect. You know, I'm interested in why it's built and how it operates, but I'm also interested in how we as the residents um, of the city or of the community adapt it to our purposes and to our kind of, I don't know, to, to our, to our, I would just say to our purposes, we will always take something and adapt it, but it does, it is private space. So it does raise this question of, you're never going to have a political protest at the Grove. You're never, you're not going to have street musicians at the Grove. You're not going to have a lot of the fundamental authentic aspects of public streets. Right. But because it is part of a larger neighborhood, it almost exists as a, as a place unto itself as part of a neighborhood. It does. It does. And I think, you know, the interesting question that I, am, uh, that I ask about the Grove often is less, what is the Grove now? 
but more what is the what is the growth going to be like in 30 years? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we'll find out or we won't, depending on whether we're here to see it. But um, I'm curious about what happens to a place like the Grove when it's first moment uh, of, you know, of, of public flush is over. It's had a long first moment of public flush. It opened, you know, uh, close, uh, 50, like close to 15 years ago. So it still is a kind of tourist destination. It's still, you know, it still is shopping mall as destination. What happens to a place like that when it's superseded by another destination, although it continues to exist? Does it sort of more successfully integrate itself into the neighborhood's um, or not. I don't know the answer to that question, um, but it interests me. At the moment, I think the other thing that's interesting about the Grove is it is a little bit in a city that doesn't really, or that has to kind of relearn this question of public space. It serves as a sort of controlled laboratory. You know, when my kids were little, that was the first place I cut them loose in the city without um, adult supervision, both because I thought it was, they would have to learn how to navigate, but also it was a safe space for them to learn how to navigate. And, you know, as a parent, I was grateful for that. And it made me start to think about the Grove in a different way. Again, that question of not, not how is it intended, but how um, do we as citizens of the, of the landscape begin to use it? Right. It also has a, a, a bigger potential laboratory impact in terms of what it means for the future of urban retail, because we certainly see malls in the traditional sense dying everywhere. Well, yeah, and you also see, I mean, I just came back from New York a couple of weeks ago, and this is not a new observation. Um, uh, it's one I've, I've had for years. But if you walk down Lower Broadway in Soho, um, which I remember very differently than it is now, um, essentially it's the growth, right? I mean, all of the stores are the same. The shopping traffic is the same. The idea of the street as destination, as shopping destination, is the same. It's not the same in the sense that you don't have a single developer kind of controlling the um, the landscape of the street that rigorously. But the effect is essentially the same. Times Square, same thing. Um, so I agree. You know, so one of the questions, and I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, I, first of all, I'm not a lover of malls at all, and secondly, I'm not a, a student of malls in this, this way. So I don't know what that means for the future of the mall. I think it's interesting that this mall, which is quite successful still, and uh, Rick Caruso, the developer's other mall in Glendale, um, is the Americana at Brand. It, you know, they go out of their way to ape some of the serendipitous physicality of the non-mall street. Um, you know, that being said, as I say, they're rigidly controlled. They are very uh, actively private space as opposed to public space. But there's something really interesting about that um, about about that relationship. You were talking a bit about downtown and certainly tremendous amount of, of development down there. It's interesting to look at that in the context of of the historically kind of dystopian view in literature and in movies, particularly of downtown Los Angeles, whether it's Escape from L.A. or Blade Runner or whatever it might Blade be. Runner, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's fascinating. Um, I, and I'm a great fan of all of those movies. I write about Blade Runner right. uh, in, in the book. Um, what interests me, and I think it's true of all kind of sort of dystopian science fiction, you know, the further we get from, you know, Blade Runner, which was made in 1982, takes place in 2019. So we're basically there, right? We're basically living in 
the world or living in the time frame that Blade Runner um, sought to imagine. The further, the closer we get to the, the time that the, the film actually takes place and the further away we get from the time when the film was actually made, the more I think Blade Runner begins to be a portrait of 1982 rather than a kind of uh -huh. looking... I mean, I, that's a, I, I like that movie a lot, and, it's, and that dystopian vision of Los Angeles was very attractive to me and very useful to me for a long time. But I think it is more of a sense of what, you know, if you think about downtown Los Angeles in 1982, that's really what Blade Runner is, um, is, is starting with and projecting from. And the fact is that the city hasn't developed in that way yet. I mean, we'll see what happens. But, you know, a lot of this stuff, I mean, the same thing in some ways is true of, um, you know, of Davis's idea of Fortress L.A., which was that the city was going to become increasingly gated communities, increasingly divided um, by income. I think it has inc become increasingly divided by income, but it's a kind of um, softer, gentler repression or fascism in a sense than Davis imagined. I think that, um, you know, the idea of these gated, protected communities that also have, you know, there are certainly plenty of those communities here as there are in any city, but that hasn't really become the defining um, fiber of the social landscape. Um, it's a kind of, not to say that the divisions he is talking about didn't exist then and don't exist or haven't been exacerbated at this point, but it's developed in a different way than um, than, than, than those apocalyptic right. visions foresaw. Well, it's true. I mean, it's true in New York, too. So many of those visions grew out of the crime in the 80s, what was happening with law enforcement, and really what, what L.A. and New York both looked like in the 80s. Oh, sure, or even in the 70s. I mean, if you look at some of the, great, you know, some of the best dystopian science fiction, uh, Harry Harrison's book, Make Room, Make Room, which was turned into Soylent Green, or... Thomas Dish's book, 334, which is about apartment building on East 11th Street. You know, both of them posit a Manhattan, you know, around, you know, early part of the 21st century, you know, where New York is a city with 40 million people living in it. And, you know, they're fighting, people are fighting over food and water. Again, you know, there are, you know, certain big divisions between rich and poor, rich living in luxury apartment buildings, poor um, living in tenements or on the street. I mean, all, you know, so much of that has happened in some way, although not, you know, the apocalypse is a, I think the apocalypse is a whimper rather than a bang. I think <laughs> if we want to frame it in those terms, that kind of big explosive apocalyptic landscape, which is extremely attractive narratively, certainly cinematically, um, and absolutely psychologically, or we wouldn't as a culture or a species keep going back to those kinds of stories. The apocalypse turns out to be a kind of quieter thing. David Eulen, his book is Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, just out from University of California Press. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.